0: I'm part of the race that's wiping itself out I'm part of the race that's got crazy
1: obsessions But lot of people I'm not letting them out I hate the living dead and their working factories They go like sheep to their production lines They live on illusions, don't taste the reality So if all they look
2: for oh, is This is Hell. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is Hell, and if you want to... Help out that horrible business model and show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Go to thisishell.com and click on support and see the many ways that you can support This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week going so far?
3: Uh, Because we share a bathroom, and for the first week of the quarantine, I tried not to use the bathroom, but... uh I gotta live. Yeah, I've gotten really good at uh, close uh, opening, and closing the doorknob, and the and turning on and off the light switch, and putting up and down the toilet seat, all using my foot. <laughs> That's very good talent. My hand has not touched the bathroom in uh, like a week now. I'm getting really good at it. And on
2: every uh, Friday when I leave, I spray down the uh, bathroom with disinfectant. But I'm too afraid to wipe it up. So
3: it's (laughs) just like sitting on layers of disinfectant. That can't be bad.
2: No, It can't be today. So near as I can figure, we have a few choices when it comes to fighting the pandemic. We can flatten the curve and stay inside, washing our hands and not touching our face and still going out as we do now on a very limited basis. For 18 months and 1.1 million Americans will die. Or we can do what China did with the closing of all institutions and community services in a complete quarantine. And like reports said about the Chinese yesterday, they were out and about in crowds at all of the most famous Chinese tourist sites enjoying a beautiful day. Problem is, we know Americans would not put up with that kind of imposition on our lives, so it looks like it's 18 months and 1.1 million dead in our future. Okay, that's an oversimplification of projections that were recently released, but it's pretty damn close to what our options are when it comes to our lives under the virus. Either we shut it down completely, and when we get back out, have a completely different relationship with nature, or we stay inside a lot longer, a lot more die, and the next pandemic will be awaiting us as we try to force ourselves to re-enter into the old new normal. That got us here in the first place. We'll consider our future in a few when we talk to Rob Wallace and Alex Liebman, co-authors of the monthly review article COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital, which was also written with Luis Fernando Chavez and Roderick Wallace. Rob is an evolutionary epidemiologist who has consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You may remember Rob being on our show a few weeks ago and we talked with him about another monthly review piece, Notes on a Novel Coronavirus which you can find at thisishell.com. Rod blogs at Farming Pathogens, which you can find at farmingpathogens.wordpress.com. Alex is a Ph.D. student in human geography at Rutgers University with a Master's of Science in Agronomy from the University of Minnesota. Alex, what's this week's question from hell?
3: This week's question from hell, with apologies to Pete, is, but what about the landlords? But what about the
2: landlords. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebookcom Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to either of us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins, uh, let's make it 10. 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert whatever the hell you want to. See how others are subverting the world with This Is Hell subvertising stickers on Instagram at This Is Hell Radio. I also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, this week's question from hell is but what about the landlords? What about the landlords? Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or email it to chuck at or alex at or DM us your answer via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is not the media. This is hell. The quarantine that is getting China out of the pandemic allegedly is also getting China out of a lot of bad marriages as the country has seen an outbreak of divorces. Suddenly, forced to live with each other day in and day out, every second of every minute of every hour, unable to escape, Chinese married couples have started to get divorced at record levels, according to reports, keeping in mind that those reports are likely exceptionalist and racist. It's still not all that difficult to believe that sequestered away with nobody but the person you quote-unquote love nobody else only that one other person 24 7 or if you have kids two or three other people you just might get on that other person or the rest of everybody else in your home's nerves i mean all of the time the same voice the same intonations the same ideas over and over as if you cannot hide from them you can't get away You want to find refuge anywhere else, but wherever you are, those voices, that voice pierces your thinking. Which leads me to the sad announcement that after a very long time of being together, after depending upon one another for support, after what seems like a lifetime of partnership, I'm very sad to announce that I have suddenly found myself in the midst of a divorce with a person who I have been with, what seems like forever, but a relationship that the virus has revealed to me I can simply no longer tolerate I am getting divorced from the person who has been badgering me to do this and that Has been nagging me about falling behind on doing dishes Has been overly obsessed with press conferences by people named Cuomo, Pritzker, and Trump Someone who won't shut up about the coronavirus and how it's all capitalist globalization's fault That's right, I am fed up I can't take it anymore I'm getting divorced From me, seriously blaming capitalism for everything and never taking any personal responsibility for the pandemic. I mean, really, come on. When am I going to get through my thick skull that if we all just take care of ourselves personally and individually, the problem will be solved, even if the problem is a global pandemic. Look, all I have to do is take responsibility for my own hand washing, my own face touching, my own social distancing, getting my own face mask. Then this whole problem will go away and will stay away as nothing like this will ever happen again because nothing like this ever happened before. If I just take care of myself and you take care of yourself and everyone takes care of themselves on their own terms in whatever way they see fit, we'll all get out of this alive and kicking, kicking at each other, fighting at each other's throat as we all try to be the first one, or at least the next one, to climb out of this hole of death and sorrow. If I didn't worry about anyone else but me, if I took care of myself first and foremost, forgetting about everyone else, I wouldn't be such a loathsome person to live with. So yeah, I've had enough. I can't listen to that crap all day, every day. Crap like the Trump administration was very slow to respond, yet again in denial, this time not about the science of climate change, but the science of pandemic. Jeez, all the time. Can I think about something else other than the stupid virus? And the jokes I've been telling lately at home while sheltering in place have been horrible. I don't mean not funny, but their content is pure freaking evil. Really, making jokes about a pandemic, it's pretty tasteless, and therefore the jokes are pretty tasteless too. You'd think I would know my audience by now, but apparently I don't because a lot of what I thought was pure gold has fallen like a lead balloon. To be honest, I am surprised I lasted this long in quarantine with myself. Sure, it's easy being locked up with my girlfriend with the love of my life, but most of the time she's working, which means I'm left to myself and my own thoughts, and it's become intolerable. Look, I wasn't crazy about myself when this whole virus safety protocol was implemented, so I figured I wasn't going to get any better being locked up for days, weeks, and potentially 18 months with my dumb thoughts and even dumber ideas. Here's one. 4.20 is coming up, April 20th, the annual day that marijuana enthusiasts celebrate their pastime at 4.20 p.m. on April 20th. For several years, I've met with friends, and we would partake, but the entire day is a celebration for stoners. So I thought... Well, under the virus, we should still blaze on 420 together somehow now that we know Zoom is a surveillance software. So, I don't know. All I know is this week's everyone found out Zoom is evil. So a 420 Zoom smokeout would only make most of the potheads even more paranoid than they already are. And likely the event would end quickly as participants' paranoia increases with the smoking of weed. So how can you experience 420, then, while social distancing? My dumb idea, among many dumb ideas I've been trapped with in my head and my home of late, was to get high with all all my friends and neighbors, literally, on 420. That is, to go to the highest place where you live, your back porch, your fire escape, your roof, whatever, and get high. You could then see which of your neighbors gets high and maybe even forge new relationships so when this thing is over, you will have new people to imbibe with, to smoke with, to be your friends. Of course, telling a whole bunch of... to get high on their roof is probably not the safest idea in the world. Somebody's bound to fall and does seem kind of ableist. I mean, if you're in a wheelchair, how are you going to get up on your roof? And besides, once you get up there and you start smoking and you see your neighbors doing the same thing, what are you going to do? Wave? Yell hello at the top of your possibly compromised lungs, either compromised by COVID or that last bong hit? And then what? What's the whole point? Knowing who in your community may have weed? Yeah, I worked on that idea for freaking hours. See what I'm saying? I cannot take it anymore. I have had enough and I want out. And not just out of the house but out of this moronic relationship I am in with myself. The constant bickering of if not this then what? The continuous doubts about whether I am right or not. The relentless criticism that imposes non-stop belittling and berating crushing my confidence. Tearing me down until I only feel barely human. I'm sick of it. One wonders why I've put up with this relationship with myself for so long. More importantly, why did it take quarantine for me to finally realize what a dick I have been to myself all these years, wasting my time, the most precious resource of all? You know, and all I did was wasted. All those hours getting drunk and high, hours actually wasted. I could have written the great American novel or works that could be compared to Shakespeare or paintings that would match the mastery of Van Dyke. If those hacks can create masterworks under the quarantine of the plague, what's stopping me from doing the same while sheltering in place under the virus instead I'm yelling at the president and a couple governors on TV daily and keep in mind I'm fully aware they can't hear me but I keep yelling anyway really it's become intolerable so we're done I'm getting a divorce from me because if this self-imposed quarantine has taught me anything about myself it's self this this is hell Coming up, our possible futures under the virus and what we need to do to make certain we don't have another pandemic and real fast. Alex, will also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, but what about the landlords? What about the landlords? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10. Count them 10. This is hell subvertising stickers live from the nightmare. This is hell. It's not going well in the U.S. with the pandemic. We were seemingly unprepared despite the growing number of epidemics that the world has witnessed this century. And our for-profit system of health care doesn't help when we are trying to address a crisis of humanity. Who knew capitalism and humanity clashed? Here to help us understand the structural considerations that need to be addressed in order to help us survive this pandemic and to protect us from having another one right away, Rob Wallace and Alex Liebman are co authors of the monthly review article, COVID 19 and Circuits of Capital, which was also written with Luis Fernando Chavez and Roderick Wallace. First, welcome back to This Is Hell, Rob.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: And welcome to This Is How. Alex?
0: Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here.
2: Alex Alex Liebman is a Ph.D. student in human geography at Rutgers University with a Master's of Science in Agronomy from the University of Minnesota. Rob blogs at Farming Pathogens, which you can find at farmingpathogens.wordpress.com. I was going to start with asking Rob about how he was feeling until I just heard Alex sniffle. Alex, how are you feeling?
0: <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I'm good. I don't think it's COVID-related.
2: All right. All right. Good. That's good to hear. I've been telling myself that for a few weeks too. Rob, uh, how are you? <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling, Rob?
1: I'm feeling much better, thank you. Uh, last time we were on, I uh, told y'all that I uh, had COVID and uh, I cycled through a uh, 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 terrible infection. Um, you know, all this uh, shortness of breath, but I am uh, back on my feet. Thanks.
2: Did you have to be hospitalized?
1: I did not. uh, Well, I had to think through uh, the possibility of taking myself to the hospital. I think uh, many people are basically told not to come, and so uh, as they're panting there, they have to make a decision on whether or not to uh, uh, risk going to the hospital. But uh, I erred on the side of not going, and uh, my gamble uh, paid off.
2: And Alex let me ask you something. You guys write that of uh, you write of COVID-19 China its initial outbreak and contraction presently breathes easier South Korea and Singapore as well. But as we know the numbers that have been coming out of China, the information coming out of China has been either misleading or inaccurate or having shortcomings. So to what degree can we trust any of the numbers coming out of China when it comes to the potential for their reaction to the outbreak being a successful reaction?
0: Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it's hard to say being, you know, in the depths of... Like the U.S. and U.S. empiric qualities, it makes it really hard to judge what, um, like, what news out of China is sort of washed right through the U.S. media lens and what isn't. Um, so I think, like, obviously, China has a lot of their own impetus to get their economy running, um, and so I think it's hard to tell what exactly is happening. I don't know. What would you say, Rob?
1: Um. I uh, tend to think that uh, all countries uh, around the world are, for the most part, um, toying with their numbers uh, as much about um, uh, its numbers and data can be a uh, battlefront by which to uh, compete uh, with other uh, imperial competitors as much as uh, organizing uh, against resistance within any one country. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, there is also, in addition, uh, something of the fog of pandemic uh, in which uh, many of the countries themselves don't know what is going on. Um, here in the U.S., um, Johns Hopkins is uh, reporting that we're at over about 360,000 cases, but uh, the CDC doesn't, like other countries, uh, include uh, suspected cases, although they do say that uh, the actual number is probably 5 to 10 times the uh, confirmed cases so we're looking at that perhaps at this point uh, three million people infected so um, uh, data is uh, as much part of the combat uh, as with the virus and um, uh, jockeying among countries
2: so Rob let me just follow up on that so when it comes to uncertainties how certain are we of How deadly the virus has been in the U.S., considering yesterday's front page story in The New York Times, which reports that there was a rise in the number of pneumonia-related deaths in the U.S. in January prior to the Trump administration limiting but not stopping air traffic from China on January 29th. Even with full transparency right now, with completely accurate information, as accurate as we can get, to what extent do we have a grasp of not only how bad this will be, but how deadly the virus has already been?
1: um well uh we do have the problem of uh us being completely caught flat-footed here in the states uh over the um, uh pandemic uh and willfully so in part i mean clearly uh uh trump and his um, gophers were very much uh organized their um policy around having no policy uh so Uh, we would have no understanding about when uh, uh, pathogens uh, actually arrived here. Uh, There was a University of Washington study that uh, found that the first case uh, identified as being one that wasn't uh, related to anyone who actually went to China. Uh, they look at the genetics of, uh, of those cases and found out, uh, figured out that the pathogen had been circulating in Washington state for six weeks. So there is, of course, the problem of the disease itself being quite uh, uncooperative and saying, hey, look, you know, even though I killed people, uh, here I am. So there's that difficulty. Then, of course, we were completely caught flat-footed. I'm not surprised about the new cases uh, or the notion of a spike in pneumonia before uh, We were ready because, well, we weren't ready, but in in, uh, going back to the uh, uh, outbreak of swine flu 2009, uh, we pretty much figured out that the virus uh, went from uh, uh, North America to Asia in in a record nine days, which blazed past all uh, modeling uh, uh, projections of something like that happening. So, uh, if indeed... Uh, COVID emerged out of uh, Wuhan at the end of December um, uh, and started to spread out. uh, It would be uh, unsurprising if it made its way to the states uh, within Mm -hmm. two weeks. Uh, uh, So uh, that uh, possibility is certainly uh, one following up on.
2: So, uh, Alex, um, you write that, uh, you, Rob, and your other co-authors write that modelers have pushed back against these ideas of how it's going to work out. Let me just get back to that one point. You write that an epidemiology team at Imperial College projected that the best campaign in mitigation, flattening the plotted curve of accumulating cases by quarantining detected cases and socially distancing the elderly, would still leave the U.S. with 1.1 million dead and a case burden eight times the uh, country's total critical care care beds so disease suppression looking to the end of the outbreak would take public further into a chinese style case and family member quarantine and community wide distancing including closing down institutions that would bring the united states down to the projected range of around 200,000 deaths as Alex, as projections are always changing, as inputs and actions taken and not taken are quantified on a daily, if not hourly basis, in the last six days since this article was written, has anything changed when it comes to those projections ranging from 200,000 to 1.1 1. 1 million? Are those projections constantly changing, Alex?
0: Um, I think they are constantly changing. Um, I know that the latest news out of the CDC is still Right right, around like 150,000 to 200,000 deaths, and that obviously has to do with the level of sort of like right, like how long do these social distancing practices take place? Um, If you continue to have like completely baffling like nepotism at the top of the federal government. Um, that sort of baffles back and forth between really harsh social controls and then claiming to open up the economy in like a matter of weeks or days, um, and the, the fact that it's really not rolled out sort of nationally. I think you could have a situation too where like the number of deaths stagnates for a time, then things open up in some parts of the country, the virus blows back, um, and you have a huge like spike in deaths. So I think it's really hard to say at this point, And I think it could be a really long time on the level of like a year, 18 months, two years until, especially in the US where there's been such a sort of hodgepodge rollout of sort of suppression techniques um, that we could see as sort of the end of the virus. I'd also just like to quickly say that the sort of notion of, of flattening the curve is really, right, is a strategy to keep people out of the hospitals and kind of stagger the length of the virus. But we're looking also at a healthcare system that's been like severely underfunded for decades and decades. And so they're run essentially as for-profit hospitals and clinics that need to keep, it's like real estate, right? You need to like, keep the beds filled, you need to keep like the number of nurses and doctors to a minimum, see the most amount of patients. So they're already in a time when there's no crisis running at like 90, 95% capacity. So this whole flattening the curve process is also against the backdrop of a healthcare system which is completely unprepared to deal with even a minor crisis. So it's getting walloped right now um,
2: by COVID. Yeah, that's the the major problem right now is that we don't have the supply of medical workers. We don't have the supply of medical care that we desperately need, especially when facing a pandemic. Rob, uh, you write that other modelers have pushed back. A group led by Nassim Taleb of Black Swan fame declares the Imperial College model fails to include contact tracing and door-to-door monitoring. Their counterpoint misses that the outbreak has broken past many governments' willingness to engage that kind of Cordon Sanitaire Talib is author of the famous book As you point out The Black Swan The Impact of the Highly Improbable Rob, do you believe We cannot apply The Chinese strategy Of quarantine And community-wide distancing Including closing down institutions That may be necessary To keep the number of deaths At 200,000 or less Do we have The kind of culture Or, or society That would Do those kind of practices And protocols That China has done
1: Well, we, we could But we won't Uh, that's the problem. Uh, I think early on there was a decision, uh, even out of the Imperial College uh, modeling, that uh, in essence the modeling was okay given that we can't uh, uh, provide the kind of response that uh, China and other countries have done. uh, What's the best way to play a losing hand? And uh, we know we don't have the uh, uh, the medical uh, supplies uh, and the hospital capacity to to deal with such an inrush uh, what do we do in terms of uh, uh, minimizing the damage? And uh, you know that modeling is, is in essence, uh, is an attempt to control outbreaks under accepting uh, neoliberal premises. Uh, I mean, it's the, in essence, a kind of a recapitulation, a kind of a, of, of what is uh, the heart of nearly all these kind of uh, cost-benefit analyses. Uh, you accept first that the rich are going to get their cut first, and then. With, them, uh, with supplies and uh, resources available left over, how do we allocate them to minimize the damage? And that extends all across uh, uh, fields, whether it's uh, healthcare, whether it's uh, uh, deforestation. Uh, you start with that uh, opening premise, and you, you work from there. Uh, the reality is, of course, is that if you really actually want to deal and address the, the outbreak as it's ongoing, you have to include uh, a kind of structural analysis as well. Uh, you have to, you can't, it's not merely a matter of dealing with the emergency. Uh, so if we did want to uh, mount a, a China-level uh, response, meaning uh, come up with the uh, hospital capacity and labor force necessary to uh, address that gap between what's available and, and what we ha- uh, have, Um, we're going to actually have to completely change the the nature of uh, our society. And we have to do it in rapid order if we're going to be able to handle uh, what's coming in the next 18 months.
2: And so let's talk about that, Alex. Uh, You write that structural causes are as much a part of the emergency, including them, helps us figure out how best to respond moving forward beyond just restarting the economy that produced the damage. We touched on this in our conversation a few weeks ago with Rob. So, Alex, what do you see as the structural causes of the pandemic?
0: Sure. I think, you know, there's several overlapping ones. We've been talking about this sort of major public health emergency um, currently going on around the world, especially in the U.S. I think one thing that we can look at that we talked about in our article is looking at sort of where do these pathogens emerge from and how how do they become so virulent and then sort of so widespread in the first place? And one of the major spaces they emerge from is are these agricultural frontiers around the world in which you basically have more and more sort of industrial sites of production, um, whether it be sort of soy beans in the sort of Brazilian Amazon, or you have massive new pig farms in rural China that are sort of in contact and disrupting many, many intact forest systems around them. That have had lots of these sort of viruses circulating in wild animal populations that are now more and more often sort of coming into contact with people or with industrial animal production that are then moving into these um, circuits very quickly where, where they're sort of able to hop to people and then around the world. So I think looking, and we should, we'll, and we'll talk about this next, you know half an hour but like looking at the the agricultural um, drivers of these viruses I think is really is really crucial
2: so and Rob uh, you have a quote uh, post on Twitter by a podcast called new tomorrow which says coronavirus is too radical America needs a more moderate virus that we can respond to incrementally which is harsh but how prepared Does small L liberalism, Rob? How prepared does that make a nation for a pandemic? Um.
1: Well, different systems can react differently uh, in in the face of a pandemic. Um, You could ostensibly have a a a liberal capitalist system that uh, had its uh, whereabouts to to prepare. Um. But when you have uh, your system, dedicated to, in essence, enriching uh, the one percent at the expense of everyone else, to the point that you have um, um, an inequality that um, rivals that of uh, France uh, at the beginning of the French Revolution. You, in essence, have basically um, bled out, and um, destroyed the public health comments necessary to attack such a thing so one can blame trump and one can blame back to obama and, and further back but uh, it's been 40 50 years in which the uh, public health system has been in essence neglected destroyed or, or monetized spun off for for profit um, in, instead we are kind of focused in on a model of uh, health uh, on the individual level that uh, sickness is something to be addressed um uh, individual by individual and um doesn't matter who's in office uh, at that point whether it's republican or democrat uh, you in effect have uh, uh completely exited the the very notion of uh, public health comments necessary to uh, address something like a pandemic because uh, Um, During my illness, I try to call my primary care doctor, who's wonderful, but uh, they refuse to take my call. I mean, so you're at a point where as an individual, you cannot solve this problem unless, of course, you're rich enough to pay off some family doctor to uh, give you a test as uh, occurred for instance the Brooklyn Nets basketball team none of them showed uh, symptoms all of them got uh, tests for COVID while nurses who are on the front line who actually display symptoms uh, still couldn't get uh, tests for this so there's built into this uh, recapitulation of the very inequalities that led to our incapacity to uh, deal with the pandemic in the first place so um I think my interpretation of it, I take the world systems there is there is line on this and that uh it, it helps uh, for me uh, uh organize my thinking about uh the different uh, how different countries are reacting in different ways um we have uh in essence the we are exiting the uh, american cycle of accumulation so uh, at the beginning of the cycle classic marx you turn money into capital you expand out across the world You uh, engage in imperialism to take uh, other countries' resources, turning them into commodities and uh, paying off your imperial designs. Uh, but at some point, uh, the cycles decline. And so uh, here in America, in which we are, in essence, engaging in fracking in-country, where we are poisoning our own water supplies instead of poisoning other countries' water supplies, uh, it's a marker of a, of an empire in decline. So we're in the other side of the cycle where we're turning capital into money. So in essence, capital here is cashing out. And uh, that extends into... How our public health system, in essence, got monetized. Uh, All aspects of society are now just a a means and mode of uh, turning money for a a select few to offshore into bank accounts. And so the very notion of uh, society is under threat uh, uh, to the point that we are incapable of dealing with uh, not only a pandemic, but a a Saturday night of uh, a bunch of uh, stabbings and shootings. So uh, hospitals are ill-prepared even for the, the regular day-to-day. And you compare that to, say, China, which is uh, there at the beginning of their cycle of accumulation. So they're interested in turning money into capital. They're interested in building empire. So despite the fact that uh, in the course of doing so, in, uh, in, in the course of, for instance, industrializing their food system more, in, in uh in order to uh, feed its people better uh then of course in doing so it helps uh, select for some of the pathogens that have uh, essentially emerged, some of the influenza's uh the two sars um, it is in the business of building an empire that extends uh, around the world and countries elsewhere so in essence they have an interest in uh, making sure uh, that their social systems and and public health systems are in play because uh, they're in a position on that cycle to uh, be able to extend out to uh, the rest of the world and they need need the systems of of uh, infrastructure in play, not only in China, but around the world. So in my mind, it explains in part the kind of broader context in which China decided uh, to use uh, its infrastructure to suppress this as soon as possible. Uh, And it also explains why uh, some of those other countries that went through their cycles of accumulation uh, from Italy to Spain to the Netherlands, to uh, Great Britain, to the US. I mean, there you have the history of, these, of, of capitalism, in essence, these various stages of cycles of accumulation from the Italian city-states all the way through to the, the end of the American uh, cycle. Uh, all those countries, in essence, uh, are embedded with uh, um, ideologies that uh, the best way to uh, get through this is to squeeze a buck through And uh, unfortunately, uh, the damage uh, is externalized onto the greater population. Um, so in in that, in my mind, explains the, the some of the differing reactions across the countries.
2: That's exactly why we invited you back on the show, Rob. Uh, in, your, in, in the article that you co-write, uh, Alex, you mentioned how a mathematical epidemiologist, one of your co-authors, Roderick Wilson, writes, if firefighters are given sufficient resources under normal conditions, most fires most often can be contained with minimal casualties and property destruction. However, that containment is critically dependent on a far less romantic but no less heroic enterprise, the persistent ongoing regulatory efforts that limit building hazard through code development and enforcement and that also ensure firefighting, sanitation, and building preservation resources are supplied to all at needed levels. Context counts for pandemic infection and current political structures that allow multinational agricultural enterprises Is to privatize profits While externalizing and socializing costs Must become subject to code enforcement That re-internalizes those costs If truly mass fatal pandemic disease Is to be avoided in the near future So Alex, what costs have Multinational agricultural enterprises Externalized that you believe Could or should be Mm re-internalized So
0: uh, like the pandemic
2: aside, and the and the
0: notion that um, right these disease reservoirs likely could have come through these massive sort of industrialized at least markets, if not um, sort of farms themselves at the frontier of these forests. That aside, and we see an agricultural system that is built on the externalization of costs. So if we look at like at home here in the US, um, not too far from Chicago, uh, like most of Illinois is in corn and soybeans and you have a massive amount of nitrogen pollution each year which runs off into like the greatest watershed in North America, like into the Mississippi River that comes down to the Gulf. Um, and you have basically destroyed, because of nitrogen pollution and phosphorus. You've basically destroyed the entire sort of Gulf ecosystem, um thousands and thousands of miles downstream. You have massive algae blooms, um fish shrimp fishermen can no longer fish. so you've you have an agricultural system here at home which is predicated upon externalizing pollution costs literally thousands and thousands of miles away. Um, so that would be one. Yeah, that would be one example is to, to start with of how to how to sort of how to bring those costs back onto the farms themselves.
2: Yeah, that's I, I wish they would do that. That would be a really great thing if they could do that. But do you think that, uh, Alex, just to follow up on that, do you think mm-hmm. that would be devastating, though, to agriculture, to the profits of agriculture, which would then be an impediment to the food supply chain? Um, I don't, under the
0: current model of, especially in, so the industrialized model of having very, very low labor costs and having sort of high mechanization, but also very high inputs, right? Very high seed costs and everything is, literally everything is purchased, right? All your fertilizers are purchased, your insecticides, your herbicides. There's been a lot of research recently in the Midwest that if you just began to grow more crops in the land. So instead of just corn and soybeans, you also had oats, you also had alfalfa, which would then also necessitate reintegrating animals, which is not distant history, which is like there were animals grazing on these farms throughout the Midwest until like the 1960s, if not 1980s. So not very long ago. There's a lot of sort of research that shows that while you would have more labor costs, so you'd have more people working on the farm, Profits would actually be the same or higher because of the massive reduction in inputs. So you suddenly have more crops that are fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere. So you don't have to buy fertilizer because of the crop rotations. You don't have, um, sort of like fungal pathogens that can overwinter in the soil that can sort of re-attack the same crop every year. They get disrupted by having going from corn to soybeans to say alfalfa to something else. Pathogens can't adapt so quickly. And so you can no longer say you have to buy so many fungicides or insecticides. So there have been a lot of wonderful research coming out in the last five or ten years that have shown that, in essence, costs would shift, but farms might actually make more money and actually recoup more money. So the agribusiness would be screwed. And they're the ones that are trying to sort of prevent this from happening by sort of staying in this treadmill of high inputs and then externalizing those costs outwards. But in terms of the farm profits themselves, it seems like they'd actually do um, pretty well or even better.
2: Rob, you also write with your co-authors that, un- however unattend- unintended, the entirety of a production line of the production line in, or- in agriculture is organized around practices that accelerate the evolution of pathogen virulence and subsequent transmission. Growing genetic monocultures, food animals, and plants with nearly identical genomes removes immune firebreaks that in more diverse populations slow down transmission. How can we break out of growing genetic monocultures, Rob? What incentivizes and motivates such practices?
1: Well, I think it's just following up on Alex's point. Uh, there is a, a epidemiological uh, a fallout out of the systems that are presently in place. And agribusiness is so willing to protect them uh, to the point that I've uh, darkly joked that uh, some of these pathogens have the best lawyers on the planet. Um, So efforts to try to uh, stop the... uh, pathogens would, in essence, organize, re, involve or, reorganizing agriculture along the lines that Alex uh, showed. I mean, uh, uh, if you, in essence, uh, in, integrate uh, a more regenerative agriculture, if you uh, go back to notions of, of agroecology, uh, you would, in essence, uh, put back in, uh, reintroduce this kind of agro-biodiversity that permits different um, all sorts of different crops, all sorts of different uh, livestock and poultry, uh, all sorts of different uh, genetics and breeds in such a way that if a pathogen should emerge or uh, spread out, uh, that in essence it would be cut off by these immune fire breaks by virtue of uh, having all sorts of different animals and crops. And uh, allowing uh, livestock and poultry to uh, breed on site uh, permits um, uh permits any uh, uh poultry that are infected and survive to be able to pass on their immunogenetics uh, to keep uh the pathogen that's maybe still circulating out there from reinfecting the the animals so uh um yeah. In essence, uh, all the things that would be necessary to, in essence, uh, remove farmers off the, these uh, price supply uh, uh, treadmills, in which they have to use almost the entirety of their revenue to pay for inputs that uh, nature uh, up until uh, industrial agriculture was able to provide um, by uh, reintroducing these practices and, and doing so at scale so that, uh, indeed, we can fill, feed uh, much of the country, Uh, is something that is uh, vitally necessary for us to uh, be able to make sure that these pathogens uh, don't get the straight shot out from uh, uh, whether it's the forest or from the rural countryside uh, and make their way to uh, regional cities and then out onto the uh, global travel network.
2: Alex, we've been hearing a lot of people Talking about the concern For the food supply chain You and your co-authors write While pathogen evolution rockets forward There is, however, little to no Intervention, even at the industry's own demand Save what is required to rescue Any one-quarters fiscal margins From the sudden emergency of an outbreak The trend tends toward fewer government Inspections of farms and processing plants Legislation against Government surveillance and activist expose And legislation against even reporting on the specifics of deadly outbreaks and media outlets. Despite recent court victories against pesticide and hog pollution, the private command of production remains entirely focused on profit. Alex, with jobs disappearing, and the more difficult it will be to have the money for necessities like food, what faith do you have in our profit-oriented food supply chain to continue to supply the U.S. public demand for food?
0: Um, I have little faith (laughs) um and i would also you know i'd say that right now what we're seeing is also a horrific scenario where the u.s food system is completely dependent right now on exposing mainly um migrant workers from from across latin america and jamaica to basically horrific conditions with the spread of the virus right so the current scenario right now to sort of like spring is spring is coming. Strawberries are ripening in California. There's stuff to be picked throughout year round throughout Florida. And most, the vast majority of those workers are either under right, like a sort of migrant worker visa, which has really this dates back um, like all the way back sort of the new deal um, but sort of agriculture is always this exceptional sort of labor space where it's not really regulated, where labor laws don't really apply. So basically the H-2 visa program is opened up. There are tons and tons of folks from Jamaica that are going to be coming up this next week whose own agricultural system in Jamaica has been totally destroyed by sort of structural adjustment programs and neoliberal policies over the past 30, 30 to 40 years. So they've been coming up Every year for a long time to make money to sort of send back to their families in Jamaica. So there's that's sort of going on. Um, if you look at what's coming out of California, very little, very little protection, um, very little testing for workers. Many of them, the vast majority, are undocumented, undocumented. So if they lose their jobs or get sick, there's really no safety net at all. And that's the that's the sort of the, I think the, the pandemic and rob has, rob has said this the past few weeks as we've been talking the pandemic's really this mirror on the sort of rotten cracks of society that's already pre-existed so you've already had a system in which the stability of the american food supply system is dependent on really ravaging nature and ecology and then simultaneously ravaging bodies workers bodies that are mainly black and brown folks coming into the U.S. to to do the harvest. And that's been like that for a very long time. And we're suddenly seeing just the sheer violence of that system right now. So will it persist? I think prices could be higher. I think um, there may be regional shortages. I don't know if it will um, totally collapse, but I think what we will see is that the sort of stark contradictions of the system are becoming more and more evident. Um, as, this, as this pandemic persists.
2: And Rob, I just want to make this bigger point. You and your co-authors write that crowded conditions within industrial agriculture, crowded conditions depress immune response, larger farm animal product, uh, population sizes and densities at factory farms facilitate greater transmission and recurrent infection. High throughput, a part of any industrial production, provides a continually renewed supply of susceptibles at barn, farm, and regional levels, removing the cap on the evolution of pathogen deadliness. This is all absolutely correct and very important, but the pangolin is not an animal found in industrial agriculture. So, how does this exotic animal connect to industrial animal production? I want to make sure that people understand that,
1: right? Right? Well, and, and it's uh understandable that every uh, uh pathogen in that emerges, whether it's SARS, whether it's MERS, whether it's Ebola whether it's zika you know it it sends us uh, running to our computers and looking up uh the, the pathogens themselves their uh, virology their clinical course the how they may have emerged um, and as we should, those details are incredibly important and they are a part and parcel of any emergency response, but uh, getting back to the notion of uh, that one must include the structural aspects uh, in here in order to actually uh, pursue uh, uh, successful emergency responses, uh, all those pathogens, uh, our group has have, have, uh, arrived at the notion that all those pathogens are in essence um, part and parcel of these uh, very circuits uh, of production that uh, Alex uh, began to discuss. And um, um, so, you know, if we begin with the notion that uh, most uh, new human pathogens emerge out of uh, uh, wild uh, species, uh, uh, typically we're not exposed to them on the day to day. So what pathogens that may spill over are uh, new to our immune system, so they're more likely to take hold. But uh, also pathogens are circulating among our livestock and poultry, and then of course, there are pathogens that are circulating in humans that uh, we've developed vaccines for or um, have uh, the herd immunity to to handle. but uh, ostensibly moving up uh, what we call this epi curve from the beginning of a of an outbreak uh, all the way to its pandemic phase, uh, typically you'll have a, a pathogen spill over a wildlife animal and into uh, a livestock or poultry that are being grown on the forest edge, um, then uh, into... Either the animals are directly uh, shipped over into uh, uh, processing plants on the city edge or into uh, um, into being sold at markets uh, in town um, or carried uh, by the labor uh, that is um, uh, exposed to uh, these pathogens as they are... Um, uh, handling the animals. Um, so, in essence, we have a, a, a ecological cascade going from uh, the the forest uh, through these kind of peri-urban uh, landscapes uh, to the city. And um, uh, in addition, uh, the, where, where, so where does this pangolin uh, fit in there? And uh, what's going on, in, uh, not only in China, but around the world, is that... Uh, uh, what are called wild foods, uh, previously called exotic foods, have been increasingly industrialized. So, um, uh, not only the money bags uh, uh, that back industrial ag are now increasingly backing uh, uh, this wild food. Uh, Sector, but uh, there's a certain uh, ecological ge- uh, geography that's uh, involved here, where the um, as industrial act pushes into the the uh, last of the forest uh, to uh, grow um, commodity crops or to, to raise uh, cattle, uh, that pushes the the growing uh, wild food industry to cut in farther into the forest, uh, and so that uh, wild food trade is fundamentally integrated with industrial agriculture in such a way that uh, uh, as um, uh, the pathogens uh, that some of these wild uh, life animals um, carry are uh, uh, brought into the city direct by the wild food trade or uh, spill over into uh, uh, the more uh, traditional livestock or um, uh, labor handling them. Uh, the pangolin is involved here in part because it's, uh, strain of COVID or it's uh, strain of SARS two there. Uh, it appears to have been contributed to, uh, the strain of bat, uh, SARS. Uh, so the, the pangolin SARS and the bat SARS, um, recombined in such a way, um, that, that is the, the strain that subsequently went human to human. It, uh, that's COVID.
2: Just a couple more questions. Uh, let's, Alex. Uh, you write that none of us stuck in our living rooms from New York to Beijing or worse mourning our dead want to go through such an outbreak again. Yes, infectious diseases for most of human history, our greatest source of premature mortality, will remain a threat. But given the Bestiary of pathogens now in circulation The worst spilling over now almost Annually, we are likely facing Another deadly pandemic in far Shorter time than the 100 year lull Since 1918, can we Fundamentally adjust the no- the Modes by which we appropriate Nature and arrive at more of a truce With these infections, now I Am going to answer that question that you pose And I'm going to say that no At this point we are not going to Fundamentally <laughs> adjust those modes But, But Alex, what do you think it will take for us to finally reconsider the way we appropriate nature
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know it's funny I I was rereading
0: um what we wrote in preparation for this interview and I was thinking about the language of like of a truce which I think is still stuck maybe and, and maybe we're still too stuck in this sort of warfaring language that like you know that we're going to roll out and patriotically like beat this virus, right? Or that we need to sort of like wave the white flag and and I wonder. One is like on a on a deeper level, aside from the sort of much broader structural changes that I think we've been talking about, is like we need to like how do we respect the power of of a virus to sort of to do this. Um, type of of work across sort of nature and um sort of nature and society um, and like so much of sort of the way that sort of capitalist forms of valuing like a certain straight like like the harvesting a pangolin or creating or having goldman sachs flood say hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into rural china to build a bunch of hog barns in the same way that that's a particularly very distorted and very concentrated idea of what is valuable and i wonder like we we need as as a society as 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 individuals and collectively to say like how do we treat this sort of wrath of the virus with awe and i think with enough humility to reorient like the systems of of value um that that has sort of led to this um Led to this led to this sort of pathogen. Um, and I don't think it's interesting that the forest itself is like, what is it about the sort of drive to penetrate into the forest, to disrupt it, to fragment it, to keep extending these spaces of industrial production. It's like we, we have completely lost sight of what might be sacred or profane, what might be what maybe should not be touched in the depths of the forest, how to move humbly. So I wonder, as much as we're looking for a truce with these infections, we also need to reorient in terms of what is about these infections that we need to deeply respect um, and have some um, some sort of humili- humility uh, towards. And can that reorient um, a, a processes of redesign?
2: We have been speaking with Rob Wallace and Alex Liebman. They're co-authors of the monthly review article, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital, which was also written with Luis Fernando Chavez and Roderick Wallace. I've got one last question for each of you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Let us start with Rob in an article at The Atlantic last week titled, Don't Believe the COVID Models, That's Not What They're For. By Zeynep Tufekci. She writes, Neil Ferguson, the scientist who led the Imperial College team, the study that you quote, investigating the pandemic, testified before Parliament that he expected deaths in the UK to top out at about 20,000. The drastically lower number caused shockwaves. One former New York Times reporter described it as a remarkable turn, and he ended up on Fox News saying that we had overprepared for the pandemic. And the British tabloid Mm -hmm. the Daily Mail ran a story about how the scientist had a patchy record in modeling. The conservative site The Federalist even declared the scientist whose doomsday pandemic model predicted Armageddon just walked back the apocalyptic predictions. But there was no turn, no walking back, not even a revision in the model. If you read the original paper, the model lays out a range of predictions from tens of thousands to a half million dead, which all depend on how people react. So, Rob, how easy is it? For us as individuals, as well as the media for that matter, to misinterpret, misread epidemiological projections, because there are concerns that the first sign of more promising projections may lead to individuals prematurely choosing to end all COVID-19 safety protocols. So, Rob, how easy is it for us to read our hopes or our fears in the production projections we're being offered by the media on an almost daily basis?
1: Right. I think what's, what's going on is that we've all uh, turned into uh, armchair epidemiologists, and that was probably, in, in fact, something you could depend on uh, professional epidemiologists as well. Uh, as I spoke of, there's certainly a, a fog of pandemic. We don't know all the numbers at any one point. Uh, there are folk, of course, that are interested in minimizing the outbreak, so they are focusing on how the numerator uh is uh, is that's it's really small and that the denominator is very large meaning that uh, that there are may, may, maybe many cases but there are a few that are actually dying uh there are other people however who have pointed out that uh, in fact uh we don't know all the people who are dying of uh of covid uh there are many people who aren't getting uh, uh tested uh, who are dying at their home uh so it is indeed a very frustrating thing that we can't uh, somehow p- uh, pin on a number the state of, of of where we're at um i think uh, that's something of a mistake in terms of thinking that uh, I mean, I'm not. I'm very much uh, interested in modeling, and I've uh, done some myself. But I, I think um, it's missing the bigger picture, and that is, uh, if we're uh, we're not in the business of being able to to see and and follow something that is at one at the same time so microscopic, we can't see it, and at the same time. Uh, is this huge thing that's spreading across uh, uh, around the world. So uh, in our day-to-day experience, we can't really get a handle on, on both those uh, ends of, uh, of uh, kind of spatial organization, the very small and the very large. And models are a way of trying to integrate that in such a way that we can get some handle of the nature of the problem that we're, we're facing. And I think they've done a, a good job of that, including the Ferguson model. It's that how do we respond as a public health uh, uh, response: How do we get into that? How do we? I mean, we're not going to be in the business of being able to to track this virus from uh, uh, person to person especially as we have decided not to, uh, to take the China route and go door-to-door and do uh, lots of testing. Uh, so we are falling back onto more of a uh, precautionary principle. Uh, if we, we have to take the chance that uh, we are going to overreact, and I think we should. I think we should be in the business of making sure that uh, we uh, do things in such a way that we don't allow the worst outcome to happen. We don't want the one point by million killed. We need to do everything to gear up our society past where we are at this point to a point where we have the labor and the resources dedicated to an outbreak uh, that is indeed uh, apparently uh, uh, infecting uh, many hundreds of thousands. And uh, I think that's enough. Um, I think uh, if we think in term in those terms in terms of uh uh responding um at uh with the notion that indeed this is a danger uh because if we gamble wrong uh then we're going to uh suffer the terrible consequences if we overreact that won't be necessarily a bad thing that will be uh means that we'll be a little bit embarrassed that we uh, we we uh uh, it turns out if it, it doesn't uh, kill as many people as we think, we'll be a little embarrassed about it, but that is the, uh, the choice that we're, uh, we're confronted with, a little embarrassment or completely uh, failing to react and pretending that our uh, failure to prepare over the last 40 years is exactly what we needed to do.
2: And Alex, our question from Al for you is that you and your colleagues Write in the United States a bellwether If only as the richest country in the history of the world The near future looks bleak The outbreak is not slated to peak stateside until May And already healthcare workers and hospital visitors Are fist fighting over access to the dwindling supply Of personal protection equipment Now I had not heard this story until I read about it in your article As the New York Times reported on March 20th in a hospital affiliated with Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, administrators stowed their masks in a locked room after a fistfight broke out among workers and visitors over access to the dwindling stockpile. Several hospitals have sent emails warning workers that they can be fired for the unauthorized use of masks. Now, I've been watching a lot of the traditional TV network news and cable news networks' coverage of the virus. And again, this is just anecdotally, I did not know that this story had happened. Yet every day, Alex, every day on the evening broadcast news, they seek good news. They seek out good news about how we are reacting to the virus. CBS News ends, CBS Evening News ends every broadcast with a feel-good story about people helping out each other in the virus. What do we miss, Alex, when we do not report about the worst outcomes and only highlight the good news about the virus?
0: Yeah, um, I can answer this with a personal anecdote. I have, during the time of the virus, my parents and grandparents live in a two-family house in Massachusetts together, and both my parents are nurse practitioners, um, and they're not, you know, they're old enough and they haven't been doing emergency room stuff and they're not in the hospital, but they're both kind of running the, like, Western Massachusetts kind of control center of the virus, which has been really horrific to watch and really interesting. But it's devastating to hear them throughout the day basically try to coordinate a complete lack of materials And so trying to figure out, okay, like a shipment of ventilators to the state and Trump says there's like, you know, thousands of them. And then sifting through the email, my dad will say, well, there's like, you know, a hundred in Boston. Like, how the hell are they going to get out to all these different regional hospitals? Or my mother has been running this, the respiratory crisis hotline out here, working endlessly with tons and tons of people who are calling in who very, very likely have COVID. And the response is basically, don't come in. There's no testing for you. If you have it, try to get somebody to take care of you who can also be quarantined and stay home. Um, And so I think what we're seeing is the total separation between a sort of bourgeois media apparatus connected to a sort of federal government that's has been completely incompetent, and then as we as 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 you and I probably both see on Twitter, you literally have people like nurses coming off their shifts crying because they have like no mask. They've been working inside of like a trash bag to cover themselves from like a patient that's been coughing all over the place. Um, you, I can see like inside of my parents' home that there's just like they're doing the best they can, and there's absolutely. Um, no sort of stockpiles. There's no um, care given to um, what these nurses are facing. There's really no um, tracing. So when somebody gets sick, it takes days and days and days for that to sort of for people to find out. There's no effort made to see who they've been in touch with. It just feels, I think, pretty horrific and unsystematic at this point. And I don't know um, what that would be like moving forward. So there's my, um, that's my hellish take. (laughs)
1: Yeah. If I, if I, if I may follow up Chuck really fast, I mean, uh, some of the examples uh, that are coming in that aren't certainly are are at the level of the clinic, but I mean, we're talking about at the state, I mean, the, uh, that story out of the Chicago Sun times of your state controller, get jumping into a car to race up I-55. She's got a check for about $3.5 million who she's handing over to. She goes into a, uh, basically, McDonald's uh, uh, parking lot to hand it over to some shady character who knows uh, about another guy who knows uh, who specializes in working with China factories, so that the state of Illinois can somehow hunt down enough ventilators and N95 masks. Because in essence, uh, the states have been abandoned by the federal government. I mean, these are all earmarks of a, of a declining or failing nation state. That in the face of a Granted, a terrible pandemic, but as far as things pandemics go, not as bad as it could be. The entirety of the of federal system uh, is is actually in, in great decline. That uh, that has to happen. I mean, in Massachusetts, uh, you had uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, who was a big Trump supporter, have to concoct a plan with the the governor of Massachusetts, a Republican, to go around Trump's back, meet with the. Uh, the the Chinese uh, consuls to the US to send a plane that usually carries football players all the way to China to pack in N95 masks and other uh, personal protective equipment to ship it back into Massachusetts because the feds are outbidding the states for this equipment in the first place. That is not a good uh, deal. <laughs> that is not a nation state that has in any position to uh, be able to uh, deal with the problems of ostensibly uh, uh, and, uh, imperial design. I mean, it really speaks. To what I think for me, the most shocking thing has been the uh, seeing an empire in decline in real time, and that the, all the decisions that we made over the last forty, fifty years to neoliberalize everything is now leading to a moment where just being knocked by a pandemic is. is uh, shaking the very foundations of a, of a nation
2: And unbelievably, that Robert Kraft story With the New England Patriots Jets That was that was amazingly packaged as good news When in reality, oh, right. that was, that's horrible news That's awful <laughs> yes. Rob and Alex, thank you so much for being on our show Everybody should go read your monthly review article COVID-19 in Circuits of Capital Which was also written with Luis Fernando Chavez and Roderick Wallace Thank you both so much for being on our show And Rob, I told you we'd be bugging you again in the future So get used to this
1: Okay, thank you very much, Chuck. Appreciate right, it. Take care. Thank
2: you, Chuck. Uh, the only thing I wanted to mention real quick about their article is they also mentioned how the lengthier the supply chain, the more exotic the pathogen, so the dangers of globalization. They believe that we need to nationalize hospitals, as Spain did in response to the outbreak. We need to supercharge testing and volume, of course. We need to socialize pharmaceuticals, according to them. We need to enforce maximum protections for medical staff to slow staff Decay. We must secure the right to repair for ventilators and other medical machinery. Unbelievably, we do not have the right to repair ventilators right now. That is not a right that we have. That is only a right of the manufacturer, because in this day and age, when you buy something... It's really not yours. So there's so much more in this article by Rob and Alex. You've got to go check it out. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This week's question from hell is, but what about the landlords? What about the landlords? Alex will have your answers to this week's question from hell beginning tomorrow. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. Our favorite answer to our question from Mel again, but what about the landlords, is 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's 10
3: a.m. show here on ThisIsHell.com? Malcolm Harris will be back on. That's writer Malcolm Harris will be back on to talk about his new book, Shit Is Fucked Up and Bullshit, <laughs> History Since the End of History. Really excited to have to bleep that one every single time for the radio. <laughs> Tune in to tomorrow's.
2: Show streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted now at 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Rob Wallace for joining us, as well as his co-author, Alex Liebman. Your eyewitness to grief, this is Hell.